Everybody deserves to have safer products to buy rather than to be inundated with chemicals from every part of their life. How do you like that, Donald Trump? Protesters as far as the eye can see around your White House. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, produced for WPFW Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. I'm Esther Ivarum, and on today's show, there's no Comey, no Sessions, no focus on just one tragedy, but a focus on all those suffering and dying in this country every day from bad air, water or food, bad or non-existent health care, unemployment, community violence, or police terror. It's the third Friday, and for this month's episode of The F Word, we speak to Gar Alpovitz, author of the new book, Principles of a Pluralist Commonwealth. You don't want to miss that conversation about people and places working right now, right here, to build a better cooperative economy, despite the seeming grip on our country by regressive forces. So the resistance is real and strong. Yesterday, a coalition of public health and community groups attended a shareholder meeting south of here in Chesapeake, Virginia, to urge the discount chain Dollar Tree to do more to eliminate products on their shelves that contain toxic chemicals that are being handled by our children, ingested by our families, and we'll hear more about that. But all that is coming up, but first this week's headlines. While much of the media focus has been on the testimony of Jeff Sessions and the tragic shooting of congressional staff in Virginia, activists are fighting against attempts to further erode health care, consumer protections, and the environment. The so-called Trump Care health bill passed in the House of Representatives, but is meeting stiff resistance in the Senate. Health care advocates recently protested on Capitol Hill about provisions in the legislation that will eliminate or reduce care for millions of low-income Americans. Chantel James attended the rally and filed this report. On a lawn in between the U.S. Capitol and the Supreme Court, more than a 1,000 citizens from all over the country gathered to oppose some of Trump's proposed legislation, which would see $800 billion cut from Medicaid. The rally was a collaboration between a number of groups united under one goal, including the Feminist Majority and the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Many of those present owed their lives or the lives of those close to them to Medicaid that had helped them in critical times of need. 
They chanted no cuts, no caps, arguing that the issue of health care for all is nonpartisan and is a matter of human rights. Currently, 60,000 veterans depend on Medicaid, and Medicaid insures 39% of all children in the United States. People living with disabilities who are now on the road to independence due to the support Medicaid gave them came to the mic to testify. Among them was Tammy Duckworth, an Illinois senator who was the first female double amputee from the Iraq War. She speaks on the need to envision an America where no one, including the most vulnerable, is left behind. The America that I love, the America that I defended, we don't leave people behind. We don't say that you don't matter. We don't say that you don't get a chance to at your American dream just because you're different. Just because your hair is a different color, because your skin's a different color, because your identity is different, because you have a disability or you don't. No, America is for everyone. That means everybody gets a shot. That means that if you have different abilities and you have different challenges, then you get to have help so that you yourself can be part of the American dream. Bottom line, people with disabilities, if they're given the help that they can so that they can live productive lives, are better employees, they stay at their jobs longer, they will pay their taxes, they... They are some of the hardest working people who will travel great distances and put up with a heck of a lot just to go to work. And if we can keep people with disabilities living in their own homes to the full extent that they want to live their lives, that is cheaper for everyone overall. Putting people into institutions does not help. And by the way, and by the way, Medicaid pays for two out of three nursing home residents. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna when I go to talk to my colleagues, I'm going to ask them, how many of your how many of your constituents have a grandparent or a great grandparent living in a nursing home right now? And by the way, they're not going to be able to afford it if this cut happens to Medicaid. Yeah. So it's not just about people with disabilities; it's about all Americans. Yeah. That's why Medicaid is for all of us. That is why we need to fight for it for every single person because every single person matters. Every single person has worth. Every single person contributes to making America the great nation that it already is. And I reject, I reject the politics of division. I reject this budget that seeks to divide us and creates losers and winners. And let me tell you, if we're going to have winners, the winners should be the people in this circle right here. Yeah. It's a real privilege uh, to see each and every one of you. And again, no cuts, no cap to Medicaid. From the Supreme Court, this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. Also this week, nearly 200 members of Congress filed a lawsuit against President Trump, accusing him of violating the Emoluments Clause of the U.S. Constitution. The lawsuit, the third such suit filed, is designed to compel the president to stop violating the important constitutional provision that prohibits government officials from receiving payments from foreign governments without the consent of Congress. Public Citizen added that the day Donald Trump became president and refused to divest from his vast business empire at home and abroad, it created a constitutional crisis. Trump continues to be enriched with business dealings with China, India, and Azerbaijan, as well as his domestic hotel business, which is attracting droves of foreign government officials and conferences and parties of these foreign officials. Representative Barbara Lee, Democrat of California, is a plaintiff in the lawsuit and spoke to Democracy Now! 
it's very important that we know if, in fact, this president has benefited monetarily or otherwise from uh, foreign governments. That's clearly against the Constitution. There are also attempts to gut the already weak oversight placed on Wall Street and banks after the 2008 financial meltdown. During the recent flurry of high-profile testimonies before Congress, the House passed the so-called Financial Choice Act. Afterward, Representative Tulsi Gabbard, Democrat of Hawaii, sent out a letter and petition which read in part, The Financial Choice Act that passed takes away the few protections that were in place and deregulates the too-big-to-fail banks even more. It wipes out the Volcker Rule, which prevents government-insured banks from certain risky speculative investments. It lowers the amount of capital that a bank is required to maintain, placing even more of a burden on the American people who these banks rely on to bail them out. It defangs the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's ability to regulate the big banks and payday lenders. The list goes on and on. Gabbard said that she is pushing for a reinstatement of a stronger 21st century Glass-Steagall Act to separate regular commercial banking from risky investment practices. And finally in our headlines, activists who bailed out 100 black mothers around the country for Mother's Day say they want to do more this weekend for Father's Day and for next week during Juneteenth. The Movement for Black Lives Coalition released a statement saying, quote, The reality is that tens of thousands of our loved ones remain locked in cages simply because they cannot afford to pay bail. Our work is far from over. The coalition is still seeking donations for bail at nomoremoneybail.org. Janae Taylor is a D.C.-based artist and teacher who worked with a team that bailed out eight mothers in Maryland the most recent on Tuesday in Baltimore County. She told on the ground that the action connected her to the legacy of her Virginia family. My great-great-great-grandmother purchased her freedom from her father, who was also a slave master, and purchased her husband's freedom, who was a full-hand slave. And so it definitely connected me back to that. Both sides of my family have been here forever, six, seven generations. So to be able to, like, connect to that part of my lineage uh, is just like my birthright, you know? In theaters, the biopic about Tupac Shakur, All Eyes on Me, the D.C. Jazz Festival is concluding on Sunday, the same day as the Caribbean Jerk Festival at RFK Stadium. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, making sure products at those dollar stores are safe. Stay with us. Yeah. 
That was Moonlight by Ahmad Jamal, along with sound from the Pride Parade here in D.C. on Sunday. And that sound was from D.C. Direct Action News. And this is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org. I'm Esther Averam. Now, yesterday, Thursday, June 15th, in Chesapeake, Virginia, a coalition of Dollar Tree stock owners and customers concerned about the high levels of hazardous chemicals found in some Dollar Tree products brought their concerns to the company's shareholder meeting. Some of these shareholders are part of the Campaign for Healthier Solutions, a coalition of public health and community groups urging the Dollar Tree chain to do more to reduce customers' exposure to toxic chemicals, especially in communities that are already overburdened by these kinds of chemical exposures. Michelle Roberts filed this report. So I'm on the ground here with Jose Bravo, Chesapeake, Virginia, at the Dollar Tree shareholder meeting. Jose, tell us why you are here today. Michelle, we were here today because we wanted to read out a statement at the shareholder meeting, at the annual shareholder meeting to Dollar Tree's shareholders. And we did so, and there was an ask that we also did, and that ask is that they meet with us, the Campaign for Healthier Solutions, and we were denied. Basically, they said that they were already working with some other organizations and that, you know, they have been doing due diligence in regards to testing products. That, to us, is very interesting because as of not even a month ago, um, our report came out around um, BPA and canned food, and we still found BPA and canned food in, in Dollar Tree's stores. So if they are doing testing, maybe they're not looking for the right thing. Wow. So, Jose, tell us what BPA and canned food is. So BPA is um, a chemical that's primarily in the liner. So when you open a can of food, you'll see like this um, plasticky liner inside. And this material leaches to food. And the fattier the food is, the more it leaches. So we tested cans from Dollar Tree. And we found that ultimately that there's still a risk of BPA exposure to humans that consume uh, these kinds of cans bought at Dollar Tree. So what are you asking Dollar Tree to do about these cans? So what we're asking Dollar Tree to do about the cans is to go to the manufacturers that supply them and demand that they don't put BPA in these cans at all. BPA is not necessary. There's other things that they could do in regards to packaging. And ultimately, we want them to take some action on behalf of their consumers. They say that they do testing, but again, like, like I'm saying, is that um, we're still finding some of these products that have some chemicals in them. So, Jose, what can we as everyday consumers do? So, one of the very first things that you can do is you can go, if you shop at, at Dollar Tree, you can go to Dollar Tree and talk to the manager and say that you're concerned. We have information at nontoxicdollarstores.org, and you can take some of that information with you and talk to the manager and say, hey, here's all these tests. Um, these are folks that are concerned with people's health, and I'm concerned about my health, and we would like you to change your way in regards to exposing people to these toxics. Well, thank you very much for that, Jose. What do you say about, you know, some would say that perhaps you may want the dollar store to go away, and that's the only thing we have in our communities. What do you say to people like that? Well, what I say to people like that is that that's not our plan. 
our plan is to make sure that dollar stores are thriving in our communities, but at the same time that they're selling products that don't endanger people's health. Ultimately, you know, we live in communities of color, environmental justice communities, uh, people of color and low-income communities, and we're already impacted by many, many things. A lot of these chemicals are e either put... Uh, uh, made in our communities, they're put into products in our communities, they're sold in our communities, and, you know, they're ingested in our communities, and then, you know, to top it off, um, some of these products come back and they're uh, put into um, municipal waste dumps in our communities. So we, uh, we face multiple exposures, and we're saying, hey, this is not fair to be able to just go to a store and also get a, a toxic trespass. Thank you so very much. That was Jose Bravo of the Campaign for Healthier Solutions and the Just Transition Alliance. This is Michelle Roberts on the ground here in Chesapeake, Virginia, with Tracy Gregoire of the Learning Disabilities of America. Tracy, I understand you too were here for the Dollar Tree shareholder meeting. Tell us about why you were here. Well, the Learning Disabilities Association of America is obviously working on learning disabilities, but we also have a program called the Healthy Children's Project where we really focus on eliminating the preventable causes of learning disabilities, autism, ADHD, and other developmental disabilities that are on the rise in America and, in fact, affect one in five children in the United States, which is unacceptable. So we want to work on eliminating the preventable causes, including toxic chemical exposure. And in order to do that, we need to look at toxic chemicals and products, as well as other exposures. So I was here today at the Dollar Tree shareholder meeting to ask Dollar Tree to take this opportunity, because we believe they have an opportunity and a responsibility to do the right thing and come up with and enact a safer chemicals policy that is transparent and shared um, with everyone for safer chemicals in their products because we know that some of their products do have chemicals like lead and phthalates like the chemicals that were found in everything from tablecloths to costume jewelry to silly straws and it's unacceptable that these chemicals like lead and phthalates linked to learning disabilities, lower IQ, um, behavior issues, attention issues are in any product that can expose a child or pregnant women um, planning to have a child because women should have be able to have a healthy pregnancy and no child should be exposed to chemicals that are linked to neurological harm. Thank you again. That was Tracy Gregoire of the Learning Disabilities Association. And Tracy is here with us as well in Chesapeake, Virginia, from Maine. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks so much for representing. Thank you, Michelle. So I'm on the ground here in Chesapeake, Virginia, at the Dollar Tree shareholder meeting with none other than Pamela Nixon from People Concerned About Chemical Safety out of Charleston, West Virginia. Pamela, tell us, Dollar Tree, we know about Charleston, West Virginia on our show because of the Elk River spill. Now, Dollar Tree... Tell us about why you're here for Dollar Tree. Yes, I'm, I'm here in Virginia with Campaign for Healthier Solutions. We're here to encourage Dollar Tree to 
take some of the toxic chemicals out of their products, out of the food products, um, and out of products for children so that the communities that they're located in will be safer. Will be safer. You know, it's quite interesting coming from Charleston, West Virginia. So you have refineries and now Dollar Trees. Tell us more, Pamela. Well, in, in Charleston, West Virginia, we have chemical plants um, and all the other municipal things like landfills and, and, and waste treatment plants, but and, and especially in the low-income communities. But what is occurring is the Dollar Tree is now coming into those communities also because the communities are food deserts. And many times this is the only store, actually department store, grocery store that these communities have that's close to them that's within walking distance. And so we are uh, asking them to remove some of these toxic chemicals from some of the beauty, beauty aids, food products that do not have uh, BPA in the lining of the cans, to take the lead and arsenic and things out of the toys that the children play with that are bought from the Dollar Tree. Uh, Campaign for Healthy Solutions have done testing on these, on, on many of these products, not all of them, but many of them, and have found in the vast majority of the products to have at least one hazardous uh, chemical that's, that's been found there. And so we want to make our community safer because on top of the chemicals that's in there, our land and air and water, we, we would like to be able to go to a store and be able to buy products that are free from all these hazardous chemicals. And that's one of the reasons that I'm here. Well, wow, thank you. That's great to know, Pamela. It's, so, so far we, we hear that it's, it's people here that consist of everyone from scientists to uh, community folks and people representing the learning disabilities. What do you think the importance of having a collaborative approach like that is? Well, it shows that, that it's not just one sector of the population that's in, interested in having safer products. It affects everyone because not only do low-income and minority communities go to the Dollar Tree, but also other parts of uh, the population also go to Dollar Tree just because it's economical to, to buy from there. And we want, we feel that, we, we feel that it is, uh, that everybody deserves to have safer products to buy from rather than to be inundated with chemicals from every part of their life. Right on. Thank you for holding it down for communities. People concerned about chemical safety. That's Pamela Nixon. Thank you, Pamela. You're welcome. This is Michelle Roberts on the ground here at, in Chesapeake, Virginia at the Dollar Tree shareholder meeting. And I have the joy and pleasure of interviewing Bahati Ansarai from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Bahati, you're from, with Los Adinas Institute, I understand. Yes, I am. Los Adinas Institute in the South Valley. Tell yeah. me, 
Tell us, Bahati, why are you here at the Dollar Tree shareholder meeting? I am a stockholder. I'm very much interested in what's going on as far as the toxic chemicals that we found in some of the products at the dollar stores. I'm here to talk to, hopefully, to the uh, the head folk, you know, about it, uh, to see if we can get them to at least sit down and talk with us about what we found and, and listen to some suggestions and ideas that we have. Uh, we would like to suggest to talk about what's going on in our community. Maybe we can join forces with them uh, in helping to produce more chemical-free products. Hopefully, that'll happen. Following the shareholder meeting, activists held a rally featuring large silly straws and costume jewelry, two product types tested by independent labs and found to contain toxic chemicals at potentially hazardous levels. The campaign, accompanied by about a dozen customers, also delivered 150,000 petition signatures gathered urging the chain to reduce or eliminate hazardous chemicals and products they sell. Other retail stores such as Target, Walmart, and Costco have set publicly available and more protective policies to limit toxic chemicals, but so far Dollar Tree has failed to follow suit. The Campaign for Healthier Solutions isn't calling for a boycott of Dollar Tree, but instead organized yesterday's actions to encourage the chains to follow other stores in adopting better policies to identify these harmful chemicals. Thank you, Michelle, for that important report. We'll be right back with this month's episode of The F Word. Stay with us. Got a dollar in the drink, solid gas so If it's about that cream, then I'm all up in the spot I got a dollar in the drink Just a dollar in the drink Cold, walk with it, I give you my pain So much on my mind, I wonder how it fit in my brain Scattered thoughts, dark secrets lead me to a blacker heart Life can't get any worse, Stevie with his glasses off Cause I still don't see hope Looking for a quick fix when everyone I see is broke Get lost in knowing it make it worse Thoughts roam uncontrollably Barely trust the cause over a decade they've been knowing me Life at the bottom, nobody but God got him They say he wouldn't leave me, yet I'm falling like it's autumn Tell me, what do you do just when you on your last dollar And the stress of this mess you in can make your holler do you fold, grow bitter and grow cold? No longer fighting now, the only thing you grow is old. Or do you flip that dollar to a dream? Whether a scholar or a fiend, watch a pawn become a king. Cold, young with his things low. Nice guy, just got a mean flow. Never seen rich, but he seen poor. Mr. Dollar in a dream, in case she ain't know. Solid got so if it's about that cream and the mother. I got a dollar in the drink Just a dollar in the drink Yeah, all and ready You can strung out, you spaghetti Your paper confetti Small time, y'all on one, I'm on mine You logged off, cause I'm online Small talk from small minds I wanna buy them all, but they ain't in this small town
That was J. Cole, Dollar and a Dream, and this is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And joining me for this month's episode of The F Word is author and activist Gar Alpervitz, co-founder of Democracy Collaborative, co-chair of the Next System Project, and former Lionel Bauman Professor of Political Economy at the University of Maryland. His new book is Principles of a Pluralist Commonwealth. Welcome to On the Ground, Gar. Great to be with you, Esther. Thanks. Well, when we began these talks about fascism, corporations and banks already had a stranglehold in the U.S. on what we call the private economy, a stranglehold on the electoral process and elected officials, and were taking over many public functions like education, prisons, the military policy, and even water. And those trends of corporate and Wall Street dominance have only ratcheted up under President Trump. So how do you see the U.S. economy today in relation to the definition of fascism as corporate control of the state? Well, fascism usually involved uh, corporate control, but it also went beyond that to, uh, you know, severe repression and a, a, a state-imposed uh, mil- almost military law. So I don't think we're yet at the fascist uh, by pure definition, but the dangers of uh, when there's some, you know, uprisings and violence of an imposing imposing different forms of total repression, uh, that would be a whole other stage. But, uh, you know, the dangers are clearly the handwritings on the wall. For a lot of people in the African-American community, people who've lived under Jim Crow or their ancestors have lived under Jim Crow, they feel they've already tasted that totalitarianism in their lives. I know that in your book you talk a lot about race. What do you say to the people who say, well, We've seen it. It's already here in our neighborhoods in the police interactions and just in the general way that we're treated by the criminal justice system. I think that's absolutely right. I think I think the black community is already experiencing the, the real dangers that are not yet fully developed in the white community. Hopefully won't be developed and hopefully can be rolled back. The reality in many, many parts of the country is of severe repression and, and uh, increasingly not only violence, but also take, taking back the votes. I, I know many friends of mine in the black community think the situation is worse now in, in many parts of the country than it was before the civil rights movement. Right. I know that people are looking at this upcoming race in Georgia, where it seems that through gerrymandering and just other types of voter suppression, that the black population is basically being robbed of their vote. Absolutely. In North Carolina, particularly in many states where the gerrymandering has been outrageous. So I see that many economists like yourself, thinkers, are writing about the need to not only resist and fight the current order, but to begin to create a vision for what we want to see next. So tell me about your ideas. You know, what is a pluralist economy and why do you want to be move beyond what you call state socialism? Well, the, the, you know, the question for serious progressives is, is if you don't like corporate capitalism and you don't like state socialism, what specifically do you want? And that's a very tough question. Most people haven't, you know, faced it directly. And I think the, the, this book, uh, and this is part of a series of books, uh, the one you mentioned earlier when we were talking beforehand, America Beyond Capitalism was one and, the second one was What Then Must We Do, which is a lot of specific things. This one's a, a book about if you don't, what does it look like? How do you begin to think through building a political economic system in the modern era 
that is neither corporate capitalism nor state socialism. And it starts with local communities and where you can begin to see um, one or another form of democratic ownership of wealth is critical to a system that is not corporate capital or, or state socialism. So what is the most obvious one? Um, cooperatives is the kind of the smallest and specific form of democratic ownership that you can see. And we've begun to see cooperative development in some parts of the country, worker-owned companies. A good friend of mine, Jessica Gordon, wrote a book about what's happened in the black community developing co-ops over time. And there's a whole tradition of, of developing that line of how you run an economy cooperatively from the bottom up. My little, this book, Principles, by the way, it's free online uh, for any for groups that want to look at it and use it for study groups at the the next system dot org slash principles you can get you can download the whole book many activists have been doing that but starting at the ground level working your way up worker co-ops is one a next level is neighborhood ownership which is again neither corporate nor state socialist and the neighborhood owned businesses there are several of those around the country we could talk about some of them are joint ventures with worker co-ops on the ground practicing and experimenting and developing that line. And then the third level up is uh, city ownership, and particularly if you can get control of a city, uh, as just as it just happened in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, then you can begin using po- the power of the city both to develop the economy but also to develop worker co-ops in and using the city's power to purchase things, to provide loans, to provide loan guarantees. Uh, many cities, for instance, are socializing the banks and setting up public banks. Uh, which is another way of starting at the bottom and working up the democratic ownership. But public banks are being developed in Philadelphia. In there's one in Santa Fe. There's it's on the line in Washington D.C. They're discussing it. Uh, they've got to the second stage. There's money in the in the city budget to do a study. Uh, Los Angeles, Oakland. Last time I heard, there's several cities that are really going forward with uh, developing public banks. Like the, there's one big public bank in the United States historically in the state of North Dakota, where a hundred years ago, uh, you know, activists were able to get the state to set up a publicly owned, uh, essentially socialist bank, and it's been there operating successfully for a hundred years, and it's been a good model for many people around the country who are saying we could do it starting at the local level with the city. If you can get the city, which has a lot of tax dollars, and it has to put them someplace, instead right. of putting them in, in Chase, it can put them in a public bank and start using it for local community development under co-ops or worker-owned companies or neighborhood ownership. That's the kind of experimentation we're seeing all over the country. This book kind of takes takes starts with that kind of idea of looking at those experiments and then saying, if you begin at the community level where you can actually get control, you can begin to build an economy that is based on the community and then only go up one level say to the state or to the region or to the nation if you have to and begin thinking about building an economy very democratically uh, from the bottom up yeah you know actually there have been discussions in dc about a public bank most recently uh, because there's been a real push to get the city to divest from wells fargo which funded the Dakota Access Pipeline and also has been really guilty of a series of discriminatory practices and then those fraudulent accounts they set up for people. So this is a real bad actor, and so a lot of people are really trying to get D.C. to divest and then in the process you know, reopen these discussions about having a public bank. 
Yeah, I, there's real progress in D.C. That, and I just saw that it, the uh, money for the study is in the, is in the city budget now. So we'll see if we can get it. There's a lot more work to do to make it actually happen, but that's a, a good step forward. I'm curious that you make the automatic leap to reject state socialism. I know a lot of progressives who don't see it as a negative, who think of state socialism as something that would be better than what we have. So I'm curious as to why you've put that in the same bucket as corporate capitalism. Well, the uh, the history of, you know, we only have experience with state socialism in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And that history is not a very good history because, I mean, it's the basic problem is if you give the government, the national government, control both of the political system and the economic system and the military system, that's a recipe for totalitarianism or, or certainly not for very democratic control. So if... So if you start at the other end of the problem and say what 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 it needs to be done at the local level and only go up one level if you have to, you begin to say democracy is a key key principle of what we need to do uh, and so that's the the there you know many people who've studied the Soviet Union and many people on the left particularly are pretty uh, pretty discouraged with what happened there. So what are the the principles uh, that you talk about in your book, uh, the principles of a pluralist commonwealth? There's several. Again, we've, we've talked about a few, starting at the very local level first, even in neighborhoods and cooperatives, and then working up to the city level and then to the state level. Um, that's one set of ideas. Uh, another one is beginning to get control of the planning system. Now, I said beginning to get control of the planning system because most people don't realize that the economy is largely planned both by corporations and by the way the government does it implicitly with tax incentives, regulations, and how the banks control that in the banking sector. That's planned. It's a planned system. It's not a free enterprise system except in rhetoric. So most economies now are going to be planned. The question is whether or not they can be planned and controlled by democratic processes uh, starting in the localities. So part of this little book is a a small, as you know, it's a handbook. It's a short little book, and it takes up planning, for instance, that starts at the bottom and works its way up. That's another principle of it. Uh, A third one is uh, taking a look at trade and how to to get a, a progressive trade policy that blocks imports until you actually have stability in local communities and only allows, you know, that's a planning question, only allows imports and exports when that is helpful to the American community, starting at the bottom, again, working up. Um, Another principle is ecological sustainability and how do we build that into development from the ground up and then find the financing and the planning support for it. But many of the examples in the in this little book are uh, on the ground things, and I think that's one of the most important features. Things that are going on around the country that people are actually doing that you can you can take take a look at and build and think about doing it in your own community. Uh, what's what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi is, going, is very exciting in this regard because it looks like we're going to see a serious development of using the power of the city government to help support new progressive development and, and cooperative development in many parts of the city. What happening in Cleveland is also very interesting. In one of the neighborhoods surrounding the hospital's big hospital, Cleveland Clinic and University Hospital there, and the Case Western Reserve University, right in the middle of a very poor neighborhood, uh, mostly black, obviously 20% unemployment, 
average family income not much more than twenty thousand dollars very very difficult uh, unemployment and poverty right right in the middle of that are these big universities and big uh, hospitals they buy they spend money about three billion dollars a year just on what they buy that's leaving aside all the jobs and the question is why don't they buy some of that from the locality and then have the locality build up worker co-ops and community-owned businesses. So that's what's going on in actually in the Evergreen model in Cleveland where they've set up a uh, three or three businesses now which are owned by worker-owned companies within a community structure. So they're not just freestanding co-ops. They're part mm-hmm. of a community-building neighborhood structure. And they're quite interesting. One of them is the big laundry that's it's a, one of the most greenest laundries in the united states it does uh, huge services for the hospitals and nursing homes and it's worker slash community owned there's a solar installation company and again it works in many parts of the community but big contracts from the hospitals and universities and the third part of it is uh, a greenhouse and now this is ohio in this in the winter you can't you either get something from two thousand miles away in california or you grow it in a greenhouse, but it is again part of this worker community-owned complex, and it's, it produces about three million heads of lettuce a year. It's, these are not these are not small businesses, hmm. but it's being supported by the purchasing power of these you know these institutions have got a lot of public dollars in them, and making right. that money move to support the community rather than uh, you know the French-owned laundry uh, fifty miles away. When you were talking about these cities, I started to think about the, I guess, last era of kind of empowerment of inner cities is when so many black mayors were elected, I guess, maybe in the late 60s into the 70s. And that push was for political power. But maybe thinking about what you're saying right now, that was political power without an economic component or economic power for the community. That's exactly right, and and that's exactly what this book is about. That is, if you don't change the underlying economic power, you know the politics is going to stay where it was. The hmm. people, and the idea is, and if you if you don't like the the what happens when you turn it all over to the businesses that are owned by you know very high elites as in the United States, capitalist businesses, how do you have businesses that are efficient and effective? but are owned in some way in the community and, and build on the community. And, you know, the co-ops are one form of that. But this other structure I just mentioned in Cleveland, which is community-wide structure plus co-ops linked to it, they're part and parcel of them, they can't just get up and go, that's another structure. So there are many of these structures that are new forms of, new forms of businesses that are designed in some way to be anchored and to benefit the community rather than the tiny, tiny percent of, of people who own, you know, own the, the lion's share of American businesses. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Gar Alperwitz. 
and you were talking about co-ops. So how can those businesses, co-ops, cooperatives, even if they're community-owned or city-owned, compete against the huge entrenched corporations that we have here in this country and also what is a globalized economy that has basically pushed the prices and wages and quality down? Well, I think the, the way to think about it is look around your own community. And what you're going to find is a huge percentage of what's going on is, is not global at all. There's certainly manufacturing is, fairly, is globalized. But if you look at the grocery stores, if you look at the, the shops that are selling things and making things, there's all sorts of things going on in the service industry. Manufacturing, which is where world trade is really centered, is, is only about uh, 8 or 9% of the, pop, of the labor force now. Most of the economy is not in, in the traded world. So if you start that end and say, what could we do here? What is being done here by other local businesses? Mm-hmm. Uh, then you could begin to say, how do we build the business up from the bottom up? Um, in some parts of the country, uh, you know, kind of a food deserts, a supermarket makes sense in starting a, a local supermarket. Uh, there's right. a, that's, that's another way to do it and, and making it a cooperative supermarket. But start with, what, if you just look around the community, you're going to find that an awful, awful lot of things are actually local, and they're not, they're not international. The manufacturing is, is very international, but that's a small part of the economy now. People don't quite realize it. I supported my local dog groomer, and she had a business where she would, right here in Northwest D.C., <clears throat> she would not only groom dogs and everything, but she had a self-service where you could go in and, like, use a special kind of tub and, like, wash your dog if you couldn't do it at home, you know. <laughs> And so after, I guess, a couple years, a big chain moved nearby that had the special tubs where you could wash your dog for half the price. And she wound up closing that part of her business. And so she only does the grooming now. But when I talked to her about it, she said that their moving in was part of the reason. You know, she had other reasons, you know, personal reasons, but that was part of the reason. I guess my point is that uh, very often when you do have a small, when you look around your neighborhood and you see a need and you do start something that's cooperative and local and locally owned, you can still face competition from a larger chain or corporation that sees that you know, market there, and then, like, still competes against you. I think, yeah, that's uh, that's a danger in some of these things. Uh, uh, that's why I think that the, the wave of the future, and, and you know, this little book, kind of another one of the principles of this, this book, called, which is called Principles, is how do we build a politics to support community development of this kind? That is, buy local and buy from, buy from the community store that's cooperatively owned. How do you build a politics like that? Not only to get the big, like the hospitals and universities to buy from it, but to begin make, making that, uh, you know, what usually happens when the, when the big guys come in, they will lower prices for a while. And right. And then, then after a while, they're, all of a sudden the prices go back up after they've knocked out the competition. So it takes a, it takes a kind of community politics, really, or movement building to say this is really important because otherwise we're going to, we're going to lose everything. So I don't think you do the kind of change that that's you know discussed in in, in this little book uh, without building a politics to go with it uh, and a movement building. It, that that's the whole idea. That prioritizes uh, a local economy, supporting local people, local businesses, and 
and changing ownership, changing to a local ownership in some cooperative way so that the benefits of ownership are transferred to the community rather than to the, you know, the tiny, tiny elites who own most of the American economy. With the last number I saw, and this was the top 400 people, just 400 people. This is, you know, there's 330 million people in America. Well, they have, the top 400 have more money now than the bottom 185 million people. So obviously, unless that changes, the power structure is not going to change. And, and probably the way to change is, is building from the bottom up and building it along with a political movement. I realize that I'm, I'm kind of running out of time, so I want you to make sure you get through all the different principles in the book. Well, the, the book is, as I say, it's designed for uh, activists, and it's available at thenextsystem.org slash principles, and it, you can download it for free for a study group or for activists. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, we're not trying to make any money on it. We're giving it away free online. Um, amongst other things, if you think about the country's size, it's, but it's one of the largest countries, uh, certainly not the largest, but one of the very largest countries, and that's partly spread out the country in a way it's very hard to get democracy in, in a country genuinely that's as big as ours, 3,000 miles across and 330 million people. So divide and conquer is the name of the game in, the, in a big system like that. Uh, Germany could fit in the one state of Montana. That, that's how big we are. So I think we're going to see the country broken up in some way to regions at some point. California is probably the, the first one to think about because they see themselves as pretty independent. And in fact, there is an independence movement. But whether it's, whether it becomes a free state or much greater power to the states or to groups of states, I think we're going to see that happen in, in a way that could be very important in the future. Um, and another thing is, if you think about ecological issues, the big corporations really control the regulatory system or dominate it. So one way or another, the whole regulatory system for big things, there are some parts of the economy that, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to make big airplanes that are international, it's probably going to be a big company, not a neighborhood company. Well, in those areas, I think we're going to have to go to public, public enterprise. And one part of the, this book talks about all the public enterprises around the world now that are run efficiently. Uh, and much more efficiently than people realize and can be substituted for some of the big corporations. Well, guess, give me one example. Well, the French railroads, for instance, is very well known, which is a very efficient, and the Japanese railroads are run publicly owned, they're run by the government, and they're very, very efficient and very effective. And updated, right? Aren't they like the kind of the elevated trains or something? Or Yeah, yeah, they're very... They're the, in in uh, some of them are you know magnetic magna, magnetically fly floating above the tracks. Exactly, that's what I'm trying to say. And they're not breaking down like Amtrak. That's what I'm. <laughs> that's what I mean. If you put money into them and run them the right way, that that they're most parts of the world they're publicly owned. They're socialist socialist entities. So right. that's a you know for big things. Uh, you know, we you wouldn't have Boeing makes all the big airplanes, but it would, couldn't make them at all if it wasn't for the fact that the U.S. government buys big military planes from them, and then they use the same technology for for the other planes they wanted to use commercially. So in 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 Europe, there's a company that's jointly owned by several governments that competes with Boeing for the big you know international scale airplanes. 
So there's there's lots and lots and lots of examples now. It used to be that people said public enterprise was inefficient compared to the private, and that idea has pretty well been knocked down uh, from experience around the world of, of, of very effective public enterprise in many, many, many countries. So for big things, you're probably going to have to have it at the national level. Uh, and the book talks about that and talks about planning, the democratic forms of planning, uh, it is a, as you as you know, it's a very small short book, but it's designed for study groups and for folks who are, who are activists. It's not a academic book at all, and it's handy, and, and that's why we made it available uh, online. This is one thing I want you to talk about before we wind up. You say in your book, what defines the current crisis as different from those in the past and unusual is that the system neither succeeds in meeting the needs and aspirations of countless Americans nor collapses, as theorized by some analysts. Rather, it breeds pain, decay, disillusionment, but also potentially the basis of a different, longer-term politics, one that I suggest is ultimately likely to develop steadily in and through the Trump era, establishing the basis of something far more transformative beyond. And so when I read that, I'm wondering what, in your opinion, will make this country move towards something more progressive, like what you're talking about and describing, than toward a fascism, you know, more white nationalism, repression of people of color, militarism, Islamophobia, and how have that be used by the 1% to hold on to power? Well, everything you just said is certainly the current trend that's what we're we're seeing. All of those elements in the you know the Trump government moves in that direction, and and uh, I think you know things may very well get a lot worse before they get better. That's certainly a realistic assessment. Um, I don't doubt that at all. That still leaves the question for people interested in building a serious movement: What is it we want, and how do we build even through the difficulties? I mean, you can't avoid the question of what is it we want and how do we build it. I often remind people that Chile was a country that was taken over by no-joke fascists, real fascism, with real repression and torture and prisons and with, uh, without trial. That we helped create. Yeah, we, we definitely helped create. It was a democratic election, which we subverted. However, the next lesson about Chile is people on the left found a way to build up and overthrow that government and build a new democratic socialist government in, in Chile. So, or a government moving in the in the direction of something better. So, I'm a you know I'm basically a historian. If I thought the Trump era and what's coming next is going to be the end of all change, uh, I'd just hang it up and go out to the beach. But I I think we're going to have to build a movement that can do what we want. And then you have to ask, what is it you want? And that's what this book's about. If you don't want state socialism and you don't want fascism, you, you don't want corporate capitalism. Then you've got to build something from the bottom up that has real democratic control. And this little book, uh, Principles, is, is all about people, what people are doing in that direction and some of the ideas of how we think it through. One last question. When you talk about building and you talk about the left, many of the conversations I've had with people, not only for this segment, just for the show in general, have talked about how for a lot of activists in the 60s, the black activists like SNCC were going into the black community to organize, to register people to vote. And there was supposed to be, in tandem, 
a movement or uh, actions among white activists to go into the white community to to educate people to I don't help to build the society that we're talking about but that part really wasn't done and so when we talk about the left and we talk about progressives I mean what do you see as the role of white progressives in combating the white nationalism and going into communities because it's not something that the black left can do I, I totally agree with that. And, and I would add one other, Hispanic as well. Unless we go into three specific communities, the black community, the white community, white working class community, and the Hispanic communities, we're going to lose. And people don't talk about that trio very well. Mm-hmm. I work very closely with the steel workers in Youngstown, Ohio, trying to build a community worker-owned company, which we got pretty far with until the big corporations and the Carter administration shot it down. But I take that very seriously, and I've been trying to develop and working with other people, particularly on how do you you get some parallel developments in the white community, Uh, because that's the basis of uh, the real danger that uh, Trump was dealing with and and mobilizing people who were, you know, there's a lot of people who strung out on on drugs and heroin in the white rural communities, because there's nothing for them either. So unless we deal with, in this country, all three basic communities and others as well, uh, I think we lose. Uh, but what you say is absolutely right, and it, it has not been happening. It, it's absolutely essential. I've been speaking with Gar Alperwitz, co-founder of the Democracy Collaborative, co-chair of the Next System Project, and former Lionel Ballman Professor of Political Economy at the University of Maryland. His new book, which we've been discussing, is Principles of a Pluralist Commonwealth. Thank you for joining me, Gar. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, Esther. And that will do it for today's show. Thanks again to our guests, Janae Taylor and Gar Alperwitz. And thanks to Chantel James, Michelle Roberts, Lydia Curtis, Michael Byfield, DJ Floyd Waheed Aaron, and our engineer, Michael Red Eagle Nacella. And special thanks to the Puffin Foundation for its support in producing this month's episode of The F Word. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org where you can listen to all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. I'm Esther Vare. Keep raising your voice. Peace. (laughs) 